So in this episode, we're going to be digging into personas and avatars. And this is part of a series of podcast conversations with B2B marketers about what truly matters to building scalable, sustainable, and substantial marketing growth. I'm joined today by Sarah Kelsey, previous contributor, and another digital marketer with an interest in product management, product marketing, and product development. That's Drew McCarty. So welcome, Sarah, and hello, Drew. Thanks for having me, Sam. And I think we heard from Drew there. (laughs) You you can say hello. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. So, Drew, to kick the discussion off, uh, tell the listeners something about, uh, you know, what has led you to focus on product marketing? Sure. I've been really interested in product marketing as the bridge between uh, the product uh, and the internal parts of the company and uh, the external world and and the customers um, and really making sure that um, the the direction and development of product is is focused on what uh, will meet the needs of of the market. Um, I think it's, it's really important to have a robust two-way communication between uh, the product and the customers uh, to inform development and track changes and and understand what will be the the levers of growth long-term. And I believe you're a graduate in economics and you have a bit of a fascination for behavioral economics? Yeah, I studied economics and finance, um, Chinese originally, um, and was always uh, a little bit perplexed by economics's fascination with the rational consumer, uh, you know, reflecting on my own behaviours and the behaviours of everyone around me. Uh, they're sort of far from rational most of the time. And so post-university, uh, uh, have been really interested in behavioural economics as actually trying to understand uh, from a psychological and uh, economic perspective, how we really behave and how we make decisions. I guess one of the things that you both have in, in common is that you've both worked around building buyer personas and bringing customer avatars to life in one shape or another. So, Sarah, do you want to just summarize your experience around uh, persona and the use of customer avatars. Yeah, sure. So um, I suppose the project I worked on was establishing a set of personas for the first time for a company and kind of working out exactly what the origin stories were of the specific customers we had at that time. And so that involved a process of interviewing people within the company on information we had on the customer, um, using previous information we had from voice of customer exercises and team projects, and then collating all of that data into 
something that was easy to understand and then picking the patterns and the themes from that throughout to create some really clear definitions of what those personas were. So we ended up with three different personas and then from there wanted to create avatars that represented each of those personas. So we ended up with three avatars per persona, so nine avatars in total uh, representing, I suppose, the differences in context surrounding who those personas were and what their stories and, would be. And that was to enable the personas to be more relatable and accessible from an internal standpoint, uh, but also to enable us to get a, a better picture of some of the diversity uh, and sort of contextual um, components that go to make up a persona. Is that right? That's exactly right. And I, I suppose another thing adding on to that was we didn't want to use current examples of customers. We already had to represent these personas as the avatars because people may have already had preconceived ideas around who that specific customer was and what they were like. And so we wanted to create a new version that still um, was relatable and that people recognized uh, and could then develop their own deeper understanding of who these personas were and how they were able to best work with them every day. And so it's probably worthwhile pointing out for the, the listeners that uh, in this particular case, those personas and those avatars were a solopreneur market. So uh, single professionals mainly operating on their own as entrepreneurs uh, in online fitness as it, as it happens. I guess switching to Drew, um, your experience around biopersonas is a little bit different. Do you want to talk about some of the, the, the differences or way in which you've approached understanding biopersonas in particular? Sure. So my experience with generating biopersonas has been more in the uh, enterprise B2B space, um, primarily as uh, part of an agency working with clients to better understand their personas for the purposes of developing marketing brand strategy. Uh, so we worked with a number of um, professional services companies to interview internal and external stakeholders to develop a, um, as clear a, a view as possible on their personas and the, um, the, the, the broad set of stakeholders that pertain to um, essentially buying decisions in, in those B2B spaces. Um, so yeah, we worked with um, uh, yeah, uh, sort of technology companies and um, consultancies and other um, software-based uh, companies um, to yeah, develop a, a, a sort of plan of attack for their marketing and, and brand that was founded in perspective on, on their personas and, and who those personas were responsible to. And it's, it's fair to say that uh, in that process, that was largely qualitative and it involved uh, you know, a significant amount of pattern recognition, if you like, that you wouldn't necessarily find from quantitative analysis. Uh, and I think that this is something that um, Sarah kind of flicking back to you, that that was one of the problems in terms of trying to come up with personas is that there was a belief organizationally that you could discern some of this from quantitative information. 
Um, but I think that's not really the case in, in this in in the context of personas in general. Yeah, I agree. And I definitely don't think it takes into account, you know, the more nuanced parts of who those people are, like their origin story, which we found to be a really key and vital part of who they were and what then indicated what they needed, which would then, of course, indicate what marketing or content would resonate best with that person. And so, you know, from a uh, profitability standpoint, it might be easy to recognize that this kind of person makes the most money, for example, but that doesn't necessarily then indicate why they've had that success or where that's come from and then how we can use that to indicate future um, content or future marketing or advertising in order to draw those people in again. So, yeah, it was definitely more a case of working out specifically the origin story and really focusing on the qualitative data as opposed to the quantitative for sure. Yeah, and that's quite a good segue into some of the conversation that I was having recently with with Drew around the importance of understanding context, even in some of the the simpler buying decisions and some of the the simpler contexts. Um, Drew, talk to us about milkshakes. So the milkshakes example that we talked about, Sam, came from uh, an American scholar called Clay Christensen, um, who's quite well renowned and has created a, a bunch of really interesting frameworks and, and um, different perspectives on um, predominantly um, innovation. And he has a book called Competing Against Luck, which looks at um, how to innovate consistently and sustainably. Uh, and the fundamental thesis is that you need to think about um, the customer need as being the progress that they're trying to make in a particular context and to achieve that progress in that context they will hire different uh, products or services um, to to help them um, along that journey Um, and and really interestingly um, not uh, doing anything or not hiring anything can be um, you know part of the competitive space for, for your product or service um, the milkshake example um, I found really intriguing uh, and speaks to uh, the, the necessity for understanding what that progress your customer is trying to make is. Uh, Clay talks about how he was hired by a company to look at um, sale of milkshakes at a fast food chain and they did a bunch of research around what customers liked in the product, what they thought was missing, uh, and what they wanted um, out of what they thought they wanted out of a milkshake, uh, and so they did a bunch of essentially product level research and innovation, um, which didn't help them shift the needle in, in milkshake sales. It wasn't until they went in store and studied the people buying milkshakes. Uh, and when they were buying them and, and the, the kind of context of when those purchases were happening, that they got a clearer sense of uh, what the customer need was. It turned out that lots of people were buying milkshakes before 9am. And when they talked to people about why they were buying milkshakes, it was because they wanted a, a breakfast that they could consume in their car on a long commute to work that was um, satisfying and, and fought off the hunger pangs um, until 
you know, mid-morning or lunchtime when they would next be able to have something to eat. Um, didn't require two hands to eat, so they could still drive. And, and you know, there was a range of other characteristics that the, the milkshake met. Uh, and they also got a, a range of um, interesting competitor data. So people that had previously uh, used you know, or, or consumed bananas or sandwiches or other things in the morning. They were they had a very clear understanding of why they didn't want to use those products because they were messy or they created litter or they, you know, whatever other reason it was, they were too hard to consume in a car. So the need that they identified was that these people were buying um, a breakfast that was easy to consume, that was satisfying, was reasonably cheap, um, and, and that they could you know, consume on their commute to work. Um, so yeah, it was about understanding that very particular, um, progress that the customer was trying to make in this case, you know, meeting their need for a breakfast, um, as well as the context that they were buying it in. So, you know, it was in the morning, um, while they were commuting. And, and so breaking down some of the, um, mistakes, if you like, that were initially made in, in that, um, scenario, there was initially a focus on demographics, but demographics would appear to have very little to do with it. It was actually more to do with lifestyle. Correct. They initially tried to look at the demographics related to the people coming in store that they saw purchasing milkshakes, um, but there was no consistent features um, that they uncovered. It, it wasn't until they, as you say, looked at the, the lifestyle and the, the, that um, lifestyle context that people were purchasing in that they uncovered um, that sort of lever of growth or lever of change that they could pull to actually affect milkshake sales. Yeah, and and I guess this is an interesting kind of uh, insight in relation to what Sarah and I worked on recently is understanding that for one of the personas, what was uh, important here was understanding the difference between operating a capacity or selling time uh, versus selling influence uh, online were two quite different business models effectively. And wrapping your head around the difference between a capacity model in terms of being a personal trainer in a gym versus being an online influencer and what was required there was a significant insight, uh, I guess, that, that we found. Correct, Sarah? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, while Drew was talking, I was just thinking about how it's interesting because we could have also looked at, say, the person that was buying it just as they were and and look at all of them as a whole from an age or even a stage perspective and looking at that demographic from that way. But it wasn't until we actually looked into their lifestyle and what they were doing that it made sense as to why this was a need for them. Um, and so that example makes total sense because, as we were saying before, we could bring in the quantitative data and look at that or look at surface level who they were um, and kind of think that we're looking at, a from a, looking at it from a qualitative point of view. But it wasn't until you actually look at the entire picture of who they are and how they live their life, that it then made sense as to where they fit in the business and in that cycle. One of the things that 
that we came to realize through this process uh, in terms of personal trainers and moving to the online world was the difference in business model and how they had been conditioned to operate. So if you're an in-gym PT, you actually run a capacity model. So what you're trying to do is sell your time, which is a little bit different to online fitness, which is uh, where you're actually trying to monetize your influence and the digital content that you're producing uh, to enable people to transform their lives in, in some way, shape, or form. So the business outcome is the same, but the way in which you go about it from a business model standpoint is different. And so that was a fairly significant insight for us in terms of how that meant content and um, building rapport, you know, trust effectively, uh, that we could help a business, a, a personal trainer, take their business online. So um, from that standpoint, Guys, chime in here when you feel it's appropriate to chime in. I was just going <laughs> to – yeah, I was going to add on to that and say that what the understanding of the business structure allowed us to identify is the problems that that specific customer was facing. So even though the, end, the outcome was going to be the same for all of them in terms of what we were trying to provide from a switching – the like time structure to a content and an influence structure, um, it allowed us to identify what problems they were struggling with at the point they were at. So meeting the customer where they were at at that certain time was, I think, a really important part of being able to create that trust with the person. Um, obviously, we wanted to build a product that was going to help impact as many people as possible and set them on a path of a ha happier and healthier life. And in order to do that, we had to make sure that the customer we were talking to was uh, – or oh, the way we were talking to that customer would align with helping them to do that. So to do that, we needed to understand their problems and could therefore build trust through our content by understanding what it is they were struggling with uh, and how that this product would be used to help them with that and so I think that you know being really clear on that not only just within our marketing strategy but within the entire company and being aligned is super important so that everyone is being super effective with their communications in order to show that we understand you as a customer on a deeper level and not just you have a need for this product and that's what we're providing you. And that's quite a good uh, segue into you know some of the other uh qualities in the milkshake example that were discovered. Drew, I think you you were talking a little bit about how um, there were other types of buyers um, or personas uh, that they discovered also through this process. Definitely. The, the main one was uh, the, the breakfast consumer, but they also uncovered other um, people that were that were hiring or, or purchasing the milkshakes for, for other reasons for example um, a parent who um, wanted a, a quick and easy um, sort of treat for their, their child perhaps um, after a, a successful sports game or something like that um, 
And of course, then there were um, other sort of more ad hoc personas um, that were discovered um, through it as well. But the, the core um, the core one was the breakfast consumer, and then there was also um, the, the, the person who was buying it for um, other um, more uh, less consistent reasons, which you say. Yeah, so I guess what that suggests to me is that there is a greater diversity of personas than we necessarily realize. And that was one thing that we found is that while there were three principal personas, uh, if you were to bring it to life, it actually meant you needed at least nine different avatars to be able to uh, explain some of the nuances that there were and the uh, attributes that they had in common as a persona, but they would be manifest in different ways in these avatars. And I, I think this is relevant uh, to B2B marketing, that it's, it's uh, a very nuanced process. And one of the things that I've been reading up on recently is the challenger sales model, where they have found that on average there are 5.4 stakeholders in any given business or enterprise or corporate um, decision-making process. You know, we, we know that it's quite challenging convincing one individual uh, to make a change uh, and utilize our product, but the order of complexity goes up quite substantially where you're dealing with 5.4 people in some form of buying committee. Um, that may not be formal, it might be quite informal, but you're having to gain consensus across a wider variety of people. So part of the value, I think, of understanding your personas and in particular bringing these different uh, attributes to life through an avatar or avatars is so that you can embrace a much greater diversity of customers. And that kind of brings us full circle back to the point about how demographics are can be quite misleading, that it's actually about these points in the journey. Now, I wonder, Drew, whether you wanted to pick up on that idea. Absolutely. I think... The one thing uh, to be careful with when creating those avatars is that you you don't, as you say, turn back to leaning heavily on, on demographics to inform the, the avatar or persona and that it should still be, uh, the avatar should be layers on the needs-based persona that you have identified as opposed to trying to tie too heavily to demographic characteristics. Um, but I think, um, as you found, that it can be a, a useful way of, of getting slightly more granular with the personas and finding the other key identifying characteristics that, that might be around um, particular contexts or um, nuances in the progress that someone is trying to make um, or um, whatever else it might be that, that allows you to, to build those those avatars that, that form different dimensions on your persona. And I guess one of the things that I would pick up on there is what you're actually attempting to do is influence these different personas. Uh, and it's in, in this context of 5.4 
um, people being the average number involved in bigger decisions, it's actually the, the job of B2B marketing actually becomes about helping sales influence those 5.4 different perspectives that there are likely to be and assist them in gaining consensus across those 5.4 stakeholders in in the decision process. So that kind of brings us to this idea, uh, Sarah, where we're thinking about how you create content that actually influences and in the particular example that you're familiar with, influences. So you're trying to influence influences. Talk to us a little bit about what uh, you know the, the the process enabled you to do in terms of thinking about content and um, working with a much more diverse audience. Yeah, uh, there's actually a few learnings I've taken from this, and I guess my previous experience with how content was uh, how I was taught about how content should be prior to this versus going through this experience and then working out what how content should be so a lot of people talk about creating content uh, a, a, a large amount of content so content and volume right and just spitting out content and you'll hit the mark eventually and I think that that's a really misguided thing because one you're wasting time and two you're probably not fully resonating with the audiences you should be or the personas you should be and so uh, there's something called an opti-channel content strategy and an omni-channel content strategy And an omni-channel content strategy is when you're just posting, posting, posting on every channel just to like show face essentially and just to have that awareness. And that's one strategy. And then an opti-channel strategy is, so opti for like optimize, you're optimizing each channel for the type of person you're trying to talk to. And I think that um, that kind of idea really speaks to how you can match the persona activity with your content strategy because you're not only looking at the content you're putting out, but you're also looking at where you're putting it and how that resonates with the specific audiences on the different places that you're putting out content. So it is putting out a lot of content, but it's specific content that works in with who those personas are. And there was also a point that I just wanted to add on what we were talking about before from a structure perspective and and working out you know, the context around the lifestyle and everything. A simple way I like to think about it is I don't know what this chart or whatever would be called, but it kind of works like a waterfall coming down. So you have your main core purpose at the top. This is the thing that connects every persona. So, you know, in my case, it was a desire to help people live happier and healthier lives so everyone all the solopreneurs had this desire and then below that were the business structures so each of these solopreneurs had a different business structure and there was a theme throughout that that showed that there were three specific ones that we were focusing on and below that has a different representation of each of those business structures which we called the avatars and that's how when we designed the avatars and all of those avatars for each persona were connected by the business structure. Um, And so I think that's just an easy way to think about it in terms of how 
all of these personas are connected and that's where the core of your content is coming from, but also there's specific nuances to each bit of content because you're relating it directly to a different persona or a different need that that type of persona has. Um, and that's how I think you create a really effective uh, and inclusive content strategy that means you're, you have those touch points with each of the relative people. Yeah, and this also brings me back to the, the challenger model, which uh, in order to uh, connect with those 5.4 stakeholders, education is actually part of the, the key to unlocking opportunity there. And, and what you're actually seeking to do is shift people's perception around a particular problem. But in order to do that, uh, you're providing material or educational materials that enable them to see a particular problem from a different light is, is fairly crucial in your marketing communications and market development strategy. So another uh, you know, sort of theme that I would um, pick up on uh, around your milkshake example is, you know, looking at nutritional uh, or changing people's perception around nutrition and making sure that, that whatever it is that you're offering in the form of milkshakes is actually doing them good rather than harm. Um, uh, so there's, there's a whole opportunity to look at that from the lens of educating your, your marketplace. Sarah, did you have a kind of last word on on education as being key in your in your uh, communications? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's something I'm really passionate about is education and and making. I guess for me, I believe that the way that education can be powerful within your communications is by making it accessible. And so making it accessible is going to be different depending on who your persona is. And so that's why it's really important to have a solid understanding of who that person is you're talking to so you can understand what is accessible uh, for them. You know, coming back to what you were saying before, Sam, around PTs in the gym, there's obviously there's a certain way we would try and communicate with those people in order to make that education accessible uh, and something relevant that isn't only valuable to them as a person but valuable to their audience that they can then take and use. So it's education not just to them but then also to their customer. So following on to that, which is only going to then come back and benefit us uh, anyway. So, yeah, I think that education is a massive part of this and it's about working out how you can make that accessible to the person you're trying to talk to. Great. Well, thanks, both of you. Is, there's nothing else you would add, Drew? One thing I'll, I'll quickly add is, is just a, a sort of reflection on um, B2B and B2C marketing um, in that, that kind of that education realm. Um, one of the things I, I never really liked about those um, terms was that in both cases you are marketing to people, um, but I think a more useful way of, of using those terms is that they help you identify the context in which you're marketing. So for the B2B context, you are marketing to a human being still, but it's the additional 
um, set of stakeholders that that person has in their business context that's really important to consider. And what you are trying to do, like you say, Sam, is make that person um, give them the power to communicate your story to their stakeholders effectively so that they can take ownership of the narrative and the story and become uh, and improve their expertise to their set of stakeholders. Um, so that's, I think, where the education piece is, is really important in the B2B marketing context is how you can enable and empower the uh, your customer your, 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 or your prospect to um, become, you know, the um, the force for, for growth and force for sales for, for your product or service. Yeah, the technical term that the uh, challenger sales model uses, the mobilizer mm. within an organization, that, that mobilizing force. Okay, thanks so much uh, to both of you. Um, for uh, joining us today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> <laughs>